So here's a question. Here's a question. What is it with Christopher Nolan and like the concept of time? I think he. Hmm. This man has a fascination with time and bending it. Yeah. I'm just saying. He's trying to discover the fifth element of Avatar. <laughs> God damn it. There we go. And he's upset that his other brother is more talented than him. Don't. Ooh. Don't do that. Oh. I'm John. And I'm Bethany. And this is... Home Potting. Oh wait, we're on our best behavior today. Home Viewing. Yes, a podcast where we watch every single movie in our library from A to... To Z. Yes, Z is kind of relevant because we are working with a British filmmaker here today. What did we watch? What? Interstellar. You said it right, you did it. I almost said gravity. It is working against me. Anyway, uh, we have a guest for this episode because it is guest month on the Pocket Podcast Network. And our guest is... Oh, is that me? Is that my cue? Yes, it's you. It's you. It's your cue. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, I'm Brittany. Um, I am a player and editor of No Dice Podcast, which is a uh, Dungeons & Dragons tabletop podcast, uh, actual play. Um, And uh, we are about to put out our um guest month episode as well uh our guest for no dice was actually lachlan from the ghoul tank nice so it is excellent we've got all these ppn hosts jumping on each other's shows but what we're here to discuss today is interstellar yes which is uh one of the like i think you gave us several options for movies for you to come on for Mm -hmm. and but we were like very specific like how what what kind of movie do we want to have you for our first time? Because you are certainly going to be on again. We have a lot of movies. I to hope talk so. About before this is out, <laughs> I really hope so. <laughs> I think the thing is like, you know, yes, I I do have a a degree in film and television, and I am a full time artist, um, so I I do have kind of the experience of filmmaking. But like as a person, I love terrible movies so i'm really excited to come on for like a bad movie but we can pretend that i'm a professional for this one at least yeah we can pretend but we can also make jokes about the movie oh yeah because because sure. there is a lot to roast in this film oh a lot really i i didn't know i needed to come in with the with flames blazing i i was actually more on the like you know enjoyment of of a cinematic experience side Oh, I absolutely enjoy the cinematic experience, and I still have a lot of a lot of gripes with it, though. I'm, I'm There's excited. With one very specific aspect of it, which is the score, but we'll get into that. Bethany, what was your take, just like from watching this movie? Because I re- I know that like you have opinions on a lot of the. Different I love movies. I love the first two hours, mm-hmm. and then and then the library. Well, actually, it's like two and a half hours. Well, yeah. <laughs> and then they make it to the the gravity dimension, and I'm like, nope. <laughs> overall very great and i actually still love the ending so i don't know yeah it's like a mixed bag for it's a good time yeah so this isn't one of the interesting nolans because this is one that he wrote with his brother Mm -hmm. this is 
Christopher and Jonathan Nolan right here. Jonathan Nolan, who's... So they actually... So, like, Jonathan was separated at birth and was abandoned to America, apparently. Yes, he grew up in Chicago. <laughs> They're not actually twins. <laughs> no. But at the, at the same... Uh, it's interesting because Jonathan Nolan speaks with an American accent and Christopher Nolan... He's so posh. <laughs> <laughs> Very British. Um, so we're pretty familiar with Jonathan Nolan's work. Bethany and I are, at least... Because we watched a lot of Westworld, mm. all of Westworld, and... Way better music. <laughs> <laughs> Raman Jawadi does really good music in that. But he uh, always is always giving, you know, the post-credits interviews for, like, talking about the production aspects of the, of the show and things like that. So we're probably, arguably, more familiar with, like, Jonathan Nolan than Christopher Nolan as far as, like, personal style and his work, mm, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, just, uh, and at least, like, as far as interviews. But, you know, I have also seen most Nolan movies. Mm-hmm. Most Christopher Nolan movies, I mean. Not, and uh, I know Jonathan Nolan wrote, at least with Christopher Nolan, he wrote Dark Knight Rises as well. Mm. And Dark Knight. So, arguably, the movie that got Christopher really, really big had a lot to do with Jonathan as well. Right, right. So, sure. this is... So I think this is really interesting to look at because it's a film about familial relationships. Yeah. I mean, that's it. To think about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, it's, it's also about, well, I mean, that's, that's the core of it, but it also uses familial relationships to tell a story about survival. Right. It, well, it's about, and, you know, it, I think on some level it's about humanity and it's about like how humans just won't stop fighting ever. Um, but I think that that goes back to the core of like, what is, what are humans fighting for? And I, and I think that like, you could get real cliche with it. And the answer is just love because it's like, it's said out loud many times that like several times love is the answer. Even, even by the most, you know, the person who's presented themselves as the most like hardcore scientist in the movie is like, love is something that transcends the dimensions of time. Yeah. And it's like, sometimes it's, it's like in any other movie, that dialogue would be considered the cheesiest thing ever. This is this is kind of why I like Interstellar a lot, because I just want it's, to... It's, okay, it's hard to explain this, but I think if anyone else had made this, it would have gotten dismissed as a completely terrible movie. Oh yeah, for sure. And I... And I th- this, is, this is a hot take that I'm throwing out there. I mean, like right now. <laughs> I've got I've got oven mitts on. I'm holding your hot take. Um, <laughs> I I agree with you. I think I think there's a lot about it that like if you take a step back and look at it through the lens of like cliches and stereotypes in traditional cinematic writing, it's just it's super hokey. But it never comes across like that because it's so well done and it's it's never overdone i think you know we there's like two lines about love and then the rest of the time it's it's definitely a show not tell situation i agree completely and i also think what's cool about it is that it leans very very hard into the hard sci-fi at first you know how how so you well you have that little bit of like science fantasy but all the all the physics and like rocket rocket work that's all very like it's well, it's, it's like our world, but slightly in the, 
I mean, just in the future. Mm -hmm. So like whatever version they have is super relatable to, but also has a different set of rules. Yeah. So it's like all the, all the physics of the rocket science all makes sense. Like everything that like, it actually takes them seven years to get to Saturn. And I love that. Right. Right. Like, like the, the, the way that they play with, these are the realities of interstellar travel. And then all the, even the, the hokey or like magic kind of stuff it all has its basis in theoretical physics. Well, I mean... You know, this is all stuff that, it, that while not necessarily quantifiable, could be happening. And I think... There's a reason the for that. Of... There's a reason for mm-hmm. that, is because they consulted with Dr. Kip Thorne, who was a theoretical physicist, and produced the movie, um, who... <laughs> oh, he's got a producing credit. Yeah, he's got a producing credit. And, um, like, he spent time with the Nolans as they were writing it and saying that... It, as, as much as you, you know, you can do the fantasy elements, like, and I'm not, you know, trying to put words in his mouth, but essentially what it boiled yeah. down to from what I read was, like, he said, everything, if I'm going to be on this movie, everything has to be plausible or probable in the science department. Um, and, like, to the point where this is, and this is one of my favorite things, is that uh, Dr. Thorne collaborated with a visual effects company to, with, like, actual theoretical math to create a cgi program to create the simulations of events including the black hole and like that created like new science like he wrote academic papers off of that so this movie contributed to science yeah a hundred percent oh i love it and i just love all the all the space work too mm -hmm. like the the vfx for the black hole yeah just I mean that you that's really based off of, of math. That's based off yeah. of the science of a black hole. Um, I think the other thing that's really like um, indicative of how much they paid attention to the science is, um, you know, one of the things that I don't think people give credit to is how how do you light space, right? How do you put someone in yes. a spaceship and then make it feel like they're actually there? Um, and from from what I could tell, uh, they actually uh, referenced. Uh, videos of people in space for their lighting, including Mm -hmm. the music video that Chris Hadfield did in space. They use that as lighting reference. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Colonel Chris Hadfield, the Canadian astronaut. What? He was on the International (laughs) Space Station and he made a music video to David Bowie's um, Space Oddity. Oddity, and, And he filmed it in the space station. And so it's real video of a guy in space. And so that's what they use for lighting reference for some of the scenes. Wow. And I think that the use of spin gravity and then making the lighting work with the spin gravity created some, like, really emotional effects. Are there that many windows in a space thingy? ship? (laughs) You know. (laughs) There typically are portholes. Like that? That's what I couldn't get over is how much light was coming into the, like, natural light. Well, quote, unquote. I get, yeah, I just, but I mean, just like this, the scene when he's watching the message from Murph and because he's spinning, the light passes over his face, mm-hmm. like, every, like, few seconds or so. I love it. It's, because it's that effect of when, like, a light passes over someone's face and you see the different shapes in there when the light and the shadow cast. And it kind of like really emphasizes his emotion, his fragile emotional state in a way. Yeah, the lighting's like really well done in terms of uh, like what he's trying to convey in this movie. And that's the thing I think about Christopher Nolan films is like nothing's ever a mistake. 
Mm-hmm. It's all very intentional, but it's it still has room to kind of be organic, uh, which I think, you know, there are some there are some directors out there who like nothing is a mistake because it's so meticulously planned. Um, and so there's not a lot of room for uh, change. Like, for example, and, and this is not to say in a bad way, but like Edgar Wright films, like everything's so meticulously yes. planned because there are so many layers that Edgar Wright wants to have involved mm-hmm. in the story. Um, and, I, and I think that that's... Because everything has to be so perfectly edited in time. Right, yeah. right. And that's, it, you know, Edgar Wright's thing, whereas I think with Christopher Nolan, it's about like all the details are there on purpose, but there is room for everything to feel like it's part of a reality. Well, I think a lot of it is because he's a very circular storyteller. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He, he, I mean, I talk a lot about the hero's journey, like, on and off mic. <laughs> but, no, I can't think of a single one of his movies that doesn't have that kind of open, now our hero is moving on to do something else right. feel at the end of it. Mm-hmm. You know, he always sets them up as kind of a cycle where... It keeps going. The world of the film is still alive after this. That happened in The Dark Knight. It happened in Dark Knight Rises. It happened in Batman Begins. Those are perfect. <laughs> yeah, yes, I know they're all Batman movies, but they're like really good examples of that because it's left open-ended. Like The world of the movie is still happening after this. You see it in The Prestige. Mm-hmm. You see it in Memento. You know, all of his movies, he leaves space for his characters to grow and develop more after. But you never they, feel the it, need to like have to pull in a sequel you know like it feels like a real world that you're like cool Mm -hmm. i've 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 absorbed the story that was being told and i know that people continue to live after this but i don't personally need to know what the next big thing is like you feel satisfied you do feel satisfied though i will say i would love to see an Anne Hathaway Don't do and it. Matthew McConaughey space no, colony film. No. Leave me alone. Leave <laughs> no, me. every movie that you mentioned, I was like, I would absolutely 100% not want to go see the sequel to that. <laughs> but I think that's because it's all wrapped up in a way. Like, Yeah, I mean, I don't see, think... He wraps it up, but he leaves it... You say he wraps it up, but I think he leaves You gotta a wrap lot it up, of... but leave an air hole. <laughs> gotta let the story breathe. Yeah, I mean, he, I just he does breathe. I don't think that there would be anything inherently more interesting or more well done in a story from the story of the the, the new Earth colony, essentially, because like, mm-hmm. what are you gonna accomplish off off of that? Because the thing about it is, this whole story is about like Earth is dying. We need to find a solution. And then at the end, we find the solution. So there would be no continuation of that particular struggle mm-hmm. with a colony situation. I understand that. I just, it's it's just one of those things that where it's like, there is a story to be told there in the back of my mind that's like gnawing at it a little bit. It's, it's one of the, but I also just feel like, well, I mean, here's the thing. I feel like we could have gotten more time with Dr. Brand. Oh, 100%. Mm-hmm. And Murph. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. It, it was very dude-heavy. <laughs> <laughs> Not to say that Matthew McConaughey didn't fucking kill it in this role, but it was very yeah. dude-heavy. Yes, I agree completely. Even the robots really... were dudes. <laughs> <sighs> oh. 
I, I agree. I, I agree with that, even though... Weighing it down. Even though I love the robot so much. Oh, me much. too. Yeah, John? I do. I do. John is in love with Tars. Tars is my best friend. Tars and is And I will defend him from so everything. Good. The thing about... The thing about Tars and and uh, what's the other one's name? Case. Case. So they were both. I actually did a little bit of de- digging this morning because I was really interested because I knew I knew that they were ro- uh, they were puppets, but I didn't know yeah. I didn't know more about it. So they're both puppets. They were puppeted by Bill Irwin, who you know Bill Irwin, yes, is you know more <laughs> well known for being a clown. Than for being, you know, a, a hardcore actor, but like I think he's he's excellent mm-hmm. in all regards. Um, but that's why he was brought on is because he had the ability to like really take inanimate objects and bring them to life. Um, but that I also think that that's why Tars works so well is because he was able to voice it and puppet it and create like a persona for a square, essentially. Yeah, the comedic timing that that piece of four beams of metal has yeah. is incredible. It's very good. Like, it, he felt real because Bill Irwin made him real. Mm-hmm. I mostly know Bill Irwin from his role in Legion, but that role is also like very, very physical. Mm-hmm. He played the, um, he played Car- the uh, white half of Carrie in Legion where his character is an interesting mutant who has another person living inside of them. Okay. And like, when that person comes out, he experiences all the same physical sensations that they do. Mm. So let's say that he's like back this, and this is very extraneous, but it's just giving context for how he can do so physical of a performance. So let's say that the person who's living inside of him is in a fight somewhere else and getting beat up. He is also experiencing those motions that she's feeling. So he gets, she gets punched and he gets thrown to the other side of the room, even though he's miles away. So he can throw his body into a role in a way that I think made him really understand how to make the physicality of Tars work. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think that that, I think Tars and Case just as um, uh, characters are so important to the story because it never feels like, oh, it's a robot. Like there's, there's a backstory to them. The way that they sound like Mm -hmm. humans, I think is actually really vital to the whole thing because you know they could have sounded like Siri they could have sounded yeah. like you know any any kind of AI that we're used to but instead they sound like real people which makes us as the audience care for them and you know it makes it still kind of sad when uh, you know they pop off the space station at the end yeah. you know where you're like I wasn't I wasn't ready to let them go even though you know in the back of their your mind you know that they're kind of inanimate now the one thing i was they're, they're expendable, they are expendable and they've been set up as expendable but it but they aren't emotionally expendable right like that's mm-hmm. and christopher nolan actually in this one little behind the scenes video i watched he like refused to call them robots because i think that's the thing oh. is they're not robots on mm-hmm. they're 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 both tools and people kind of at the same time but they're never like robots in the ways that we think of robots that we they're like they're true artificial intelligence in a way. Yeah. In that 
In that if you were talking to them and you didn't see them, they could absolutely pass a terrain test. Right, right, exactly. And and, yeah. and the thing about it is, the thing for me about this movie is, this is a, such a great example about how I feel about this movie, is that we can have, you know, such an in-depth conversation about these, you know, artificial intelligent robots, uh, machinery, whatever we want to call them. And that's not even half of the interesting things about this movie because it's yes. so like rich in the layers and the lore that they don't touch on that I think is perfect because the more that you go into detail about things, the less the story becomes important. And it always, the story always is about this one man trying to save the world. It really is not like it, it, on its outside, it looks like the most plot-driven story ever. Mm-hmm. The humans are running out of food. We have to find something. But it's such a character study at yes. its heart. For, specifically for Coop, but by extension for Murph. Yeah. You know? Like, uh, we haven't even mentioned Timmy yet. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, your boy's in this one. <laughs> My boy Timmy. <laughs> in like the first 30 minutes of the movie, Timothy Chalamet. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> I already forgot he was in it. Because <laughs> it's not because it's not important. Like it becomes about no. the character and less about the actors mm-hmm. playing the character. Um, exactly. But that's like again, that's another really interesting um, kind of device of this of this way that this world is built. Is it's built so strongly that the you know Christopher Nolan never feels like he has to turn to the audience and say, and now these characters are twenty years older. Like it all, it just mm-hmm. is. And that's the thing about yes. Tom that I really like. There's a bunch of little plot points about Tom that we we hear and we pick up on. Yeah, that, in the messages. Yeah, yeah, but that never become like plot relevant. And I think I got so mm-hmm. used to like stories and films that are big and cinematic that every time a character speaks, it had to be something that would drive a further point home later. But like one of the things we learn is that one of Tom's uh, children dies. Yeah. And then and then that's it. And t- we never see Tom and Cooper never meet again. Like, that's it. But we, yeah. we get this, like, we get this whole story that's unfolding. I, and I think it mm-hmm. really plays into the aspect of, like, the time slippage. The time dilation, yeah. Yeah, it's really oh. good. It's, it's phenomenal because you have to see Cooper become a grandfather and then find out that he's lost his grandchild in the span of 30 seconds. Yeah. And that, I mean, that scene of Matthew McConaughey weeping has been mean to hell. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's also still so emotionally affecting. Yeah. Cause it's really well done and it's never, it's not like a, you know, willing to the heavens thing. It is just a man experiencing emotion because again, his whole life essentially just flashed before his eyes. Mm-hmm. Oh. I mean, talking about emotional beats, this, the punch to the gut when you realize that only a few minutes have passed on the on the water planet when they arrive there. Oof. That, like, Oof. From, from when she landed, from when the first astronaut landed, uh-huh. and that she died as soon as it was, and it's just been the first signal passing yeah. for, like, years. Oh. That is devastating (laughs) that sequence specifically starts to fuck you up just like um with oh gosh what was the other um astronaut's name um i can't think of his name right now god i i know romilly i know brand i know man and i know cooper 
Anyways, the astronaut that was on the spaceship when they went down yeah. to the water planet. Um, oh, Romilly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, like, him him being older when they open mm-hmm. the doors is like... It's... It hits you because it's like, that's when things become real for the characters and for the audience. That time is going to be different and it becomes, it becomes a resource like, you know, gas and... Well, not gas. They don't use gas. But like fuel and food. Rocket fuel, you yeah. You know, and... <laughs> thinking of time as a resource with it and you know you can think of it conceptually as a person but then the minute that it becomes Mm -hmm. like fictionalized reality of we see it they essentially we see the the changes in the way that time works within the the different you know planets that they go to and the ships and Mm -hmm. all that due to the black hole yeah it like it it gets to you because because then you just start thinking about time and it's like ah again Christopher Nolan has a thing with time and bending it and changing it and and I get it like you know it's a very human I think reaction to the reality that time can't go backwards kind of deal but still it's a lot <laughs> I think that that sequence is also one of the spots where the score really works mm-hmm. because of the ticking yeah the beats the ticking well Mm -hmm. while they uh get there yeah they're so good i guess that the like on that planet the the beats per minute is like equivalent to years or something like that it's it's a days on earth so every 1.25 seconds is a day on earth yeah within within that reality people have done the math to like calculate it out so i would not want to know yeah right there's a tick every 1.25 seconds and it's just oof. yeah Hans Hans Zimmer, uh, I have complex feelings about Hans Zimmer. As a person or as a composer for this movie specifically? As a composer for movies in general. Okay, alright. <laughs> Especially Christopher Nolan movies. Okay. <laughs> okay, so he does the uh, scene where they first dock with the Endurance in Earth orbit. He has a really haunting like violin yeah. piece that like is very like romantic in a way and, and i mean romantic in the terms of like the romantic composers mm-hmm. and it, it's very haunting and kind of like establishes this sense of wonder that you have at them being in space and then he does whenever they're in peril he does that like organ piece mm-hmm. that sounds almost like a fugue a little bit the do 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 that one mm-hmm. that this kind of ratchets up the tension so he's very good at using the music to like strike a mood mm-hmm but sometimes it becomes a little too disjointed and he's not very good at resolving tension at the end of a scene. Mm. Yeah, those were like the only two themes, really. Like, there was only like three or four themes. Like, yeah. Apparently, and it got really boring really fast. Apparently, that the only information that Christopher Nolan gave Hans Zimmer was like a one page um, with kind of just thoughts not really even related to the plot. So I have a feeling that it might have <laughs> been composed kind of in the dark. Uh, in uh, relation to the film, which I could I could definitely see being the reality. And you see, I've heard him score other films a little bit better. Yeah. Like, I think he did yeah. a better... And don't knock me for this, but I think he did a pretty <laughs> good job with the score of of Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he composed the Wonder Woman theme, and that shit mm. goes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but... He, there's this, there's this moment at the end of 
my favorite sequence of the film, which is the um when which is after Matt Damon goes crazy, um and they <laughs> um and they've uh, docked with the endurance. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a moment where he does a thing that he did in Inception too, which is where the theme just kind of tapers off and just you just hear a swell of instruments to cover the transition that didn't actually happen, mm. and it just that breaks. It's jarring. Movie, it jars me a little too much. And maybe that's just because I'm a music person and I want an actual resolution. Well, no, I mean, I... And when something like that fails to resolve, maybe it's... Maybe I, religion I has ruined you because every... <laughs> every hymn has ruined <laughs> I mean, I was going to say that I would agree with you because I'm, I'm very poor at picking up, like, musical cues. Um, like, unless it really takes me out of it, I really don't notice stuff. But there was one particular transition that I was like, what the fuck happened? It sounded like, it, it sounded like the music got cut off, like, in the edit and not in the, like, score. And that also may be the case because who knows how that goes. But it was right at the mm-hmm. end of uh, Cooper getting all of the messages from Tom um, he like puts his hand up on the screen and then the music that was underneath just stops. Oh, I, it just, I liked that. It, it didn't like, it took me out of it. And, and, and again, not to say that that isn't a choice and it, it didn't work for yeah. the filmmaker, but like, that was the time I noticed that there wasn't it, it can a, break it. Yes. there wasn't a resolution to it. Yeah. I, I agree with you on that point. And I think, I think the thing about it too, is I'm wondering if there was maybe some kind of, um, tension between, uh, the composition and the sound design. Because there were a couple moments that I thought were such excellent uses of silence or muffled mm-hmm. sound design. And I thought that was really good. Mm-hmm. And what I'm wondering is if that if those moments had to be fought for in the, you know, post production of the sound designer saying, Hey, I don't want anything here and then, you know, then there being a potential like, oh, but what if we did composition? Like I don't know and again, I don't know. I'm I'm making kind of some assumptions here, but I think that the sound design mm-hmm. was so good that there were moments I wish there wasn't underscoring because the sound design really could have popped off. You see, I think that maybe now that you've brought that up, I'm thinking that maybe that lack of resolution is meant to be intentional because their problems have not resolved in a way. Also true. So in a way, the score is maybe reflecting the character's states of mind. But speaking of silence... Yeah. The... Yeah. All... The the commitment... I mean, you were talking about the commitment to scientific accuracy. Mm-hmm. The, the silent explosion mm-hmm. in space. Ugh. Just... Oh. Incredible. Because you have to... You have to experience it like they experience it. And it just feels like a moment of holding your breath. And that, I think, is such a powerful kind of feeling as an audience member. Um, It's really hard to kind of manufacture that. And so for that to feel organic and that to feel like part of the the sequence is really powerful. Mm -hmm. It's... It's it's just really really beautifully crafted like overall like i mean we've talked about the sound design we've talked about the visuals we've talked about the story and it it comes together in a certain way that you just i i just i don't want to engage in like in exceptionalism with nolan you know mm, yeah i don't want to be one of those guys who does it but i just don't know that, I mean, it, it kind of is an auteur kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah, like, yeah. And I think where, where, where this this doesn't work 
if it was done by someone else in a way because it is in a way a deeply personal story. Yeah. And there's and there's I definitely think there's something to be said about like what you were saying earlier, Bethany, about we get to the library and things start to kind of feel a little funky, but I don't think that there's a way that you could resolve that storyline specifically without that. But it just I one of the things I was I wrote down that I was like I'm I don't know if I feel the, you know, they brought us here and they being us in the future and then the like um yeah you know i'm in the a fifth dimension that i can control aspects of time like that that's the point where i was like eh, all right i guess we're going more fantasy <laughs> realism than space realism but it's still right. powerful enough to be a story about love that you are willing to kind of at least sit through it yeah, for sure. I know the the first time I watched this, I was like, nope, this is stupid. As, <laughs> as soon as the library hit, I was like, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. He's just trying to be, because of Inception and mm-hmm. like, you know, having things about that, but... And how soft sci-fi that was. Right. And But this time, I, you know, as much as I still don't like it, I really was able to like, jive past it and be like, oh, this is actually a great, like, story. And it actually, you know, it does serve a purpose. I wonder if we could have just like been there for a few seconds Mm. saved ourselves some time Mm -hmm. and just kind of like if he had like pushed a few of the books out and then that would have been it and then you would just realize because i know he doesn't like to hold you know hands and like explain the whole story i think everyone would have understood that it was him like if it had just been him screaming at murph for like five seconds drop a few books and then cut back to the spaceship or something yeah i think that for him well it cuts him waking up right i think the story element that that is missing that i actually did have a gripe with is um with the whole watch thing at the end, right? The watch is what Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. gets all the information to Murph, who then can figure out how to save everybody, et cetera, and onwards. But the thing that I found hard to kind of parse was, like, how is that the moment that Murph decides that her father is talking to her from beyond time? Like, there's no other times before that that would have made me believe that was something she was willing to accept as a reality. Because, again, we're talking about, like, scientists. We're talking about a woman who, uh, like, gave up that her father was ever going to come back. Like, so then there's this moment of her being like, oh, this this thing is my dad for sure. Like, I I would have believed it more if it would have been not related. If she wouldn't have said to her brother dad's come back and showed up the watch like i would have believed it if it would have been a you know a a continuation of the quote-unquote they even even though i hate that bit like i would have believed murph's (laughs) acceptance more if she would have been like oh they're talking to us i kind of see it i but i also think the choice of the watch is something that he gave her I don't know. I really like the symbolic resonance of that. I I think him him saying to her brother he came back that did that didn't work for me necessarily because I I do think she would approach it with a little more skepticism. But then you consider that she believed from the beginning that so, and that something was talking to her and was never actually scared of it. You know, like she establishes that yeah pretty easily. I think the thing that and I think hard is the significant. Sorry. <laughs> so Yeah, no, no problem. I think the significance, though, is that it's in a moment when she has finally decided to return home for her family. So in a way, I think it kind of parallels her journey. Like, 
she's come back. You know, Murph actually Murph has decided I have to save not just Earth. I have to save my family too. I have to save these people, and it's sort of her realizing, in a way, what motivated her father, mm-hmm. because. He wasn't just trying to save Earth. He was trying to save his family, too. Mm-hmm. So I think that it kind of... I, I really like the emotional p- parallel of that moment for both of them. Where they realize like what they've had to do to save not just humanity, but their families as well. Because, you know, she burns, it, she burns her brother's crops. That's his food, <laughs> you know? <laughs> she, she has to do something that she's kind of opposed to. To maybe guarantee that there's life for her nephew. And it, I don't know. I think there are a lot of interesting parallels between Murph and Cooper that could be explored more in a different space. Mm -hmm. You know, I I don't want to unpack it all here. But I think that that's that's the moment that she understands her father. And that's why she's able to understand that it is him communicating with her. I like it a lot. Also, (laughs) I... I kind of love the they plot, but I love that cosmic fuckery. <laughs> like I like that I like that when it's used everywhere that's like, oh, you people from the future have transcended and ascended in a way. Like I love the idea of transcendence and ascension when it's explored in a lot of different narratives. Feels a bit Doctor Who, doesn't it? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> it's a little Doctor Who, it's a little Stargate, it's a little Buddhist, and it's a little Catholic in a way. Oh, gosh. We don't need to go there. <laughs> but I, I think it's interesting, the idea that eventually humanity not just lets slip the surly bonds of Earth. They let slip the surly bonds of this dimension, <laughs> of this plane. Like, it, it's it's something that you see in, like, other media, too. Like, uh, Superman Red Sun, oh which my is... God. Can you pick a non-superhero movie? It's not a movie. It's a, well, it is a movie now. I haven't seen the movie yet, but it's a comic book. It's it's a oh oh this the the thingy with the the, the, stuff. Ad, the adaptation yeah. where Superman lands in Russia instead. Yeah, and it's revealed that Superman isn't actually a Kryptonian. He's from an advanced. He's he's from far the far future of Earth, and it's like kind of this idea that. Humanity does become so advanced eventually that they do crack the code of time and dimension. I I love far future sci-fi. I just do. Yeah, but I, that's the problem is, is that is this kind of, movie is not far future sci-fi until the last, you know, third of the movie. Right. So that Unless, what makes it well, it it's never established before that. It's hinted at, <laughs> but it never there's nothing anything there's never anything solid that makes me feel like, oh, we're leading up to this. And I think that's what makes it not work, is that I wasn't ready like not ready ready but like i tried to approach this this viewing with like a fresh set of eyes because i have seen it before obviously Mm -hmm. but like yeah as an Mm -hmm. audience i i wasn't ready for it to be uh they being us far future ascension i i mean i'm with you i think that those are great things but it just felt like a oops suddenly this is what we're doing now (laughs) (laughs) i I don't know. I think it, I think they communicated it well, even just with the idea of the handshake, you know? But again, it was like, they, and it never was an answer of who until the very end. I mean, we always had to know who they were. No, see, though. see, I feel like you're just going with it, though. How, yeah, how does, John, you're, how you, does a you want this. just happen? See, this is the same Inception problem. Yeah. How does a wormhole just happen to appear 
in our solar system. Uh, How does that No, no, work? no. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that from the beginning, I felt like the dialogue insinuated that that the NASA didn't know who they were, but they knew that yes. they was some kind of uh, being who had the ability to create wormholes and, you know, uh, send... Uh, Cooper to NASA, you know, the, with the uh, coordinates, et cetera, and onwards. And then, and I was willing to accept that. Like, I was willing to be mm-hmm. like, okay, they're going to put some faith in uh, an element of uh, the unknown because they know that it could be explained eventually. I, I got that. But then when we get to the library and the Tesseract and all of that being us from the future, it didn't, it didn't hit right for me. Like, not that I didn't accept it, but then it became like a, all right, we've got a minute for you to pretend that you're going to accept this reality that we <laughs> haven't established before that. That's so, all I'm saying. What what you're saying is that this Christopher Nolan movie is a little bit bottom heavy with exposition. <laughs> Is that that Christopher Nolan put way too much ex- explanation in the back thirty minutes of the movie? Yeah, yeah. This sounds like a common problem. <laughs> this is a Christopher problem, not a Jonathan problem. This is such a Jonathan problem. He does this in every season of Westworld. He leaves cryptic hints and then tries to. Well, he leaves it all. more hints though. <laughs> Christopher's like, guess what I had in my back pocket that I'm gonna pretend like we all knew at the beginning. Guess what? Mal killed herself. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Christopher. I hate Nolan. them. <laughs> it's the Christopher Nolan woman problem. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, for sure. God, I'm so mad. I really for this almost three hour movie. Why couldn't we have like a ten minute montage of what Murph was doing? Like more. Like, can we show Murph growing up and actually learning the physics necessary to complete this equation? Honestly, I'm more interested on like the like Saturn, like the new mm-hmm. colony or whatever. Like, yeah, maybe like a montage of them like building it up or something. Oh. Uh, yeah, I also, I do really like, though, the the, the uh, documentary, quote-unquote, footage at the beginning yeah. of the movie. He uses Christopher Nolan in aspect ratios, man. Well, the thing about like, the documentary footage is it's from a real documentary. What? Yeah, let me see if I can find... Is the, it about the Dust Bowl? It is about the Dust Bowl, and all they did was superimpose the the one clip of the woman who plays Older Murph into it. Everything else was from a real documentary. Let me see if I can find the name of this, because it was... Oh, my God. I thought that was really smart, because it, what... He, again... Because it hits home so real. Yeah, the thing that I really like Because it's, it's got that naturalistic style that... Yeah. So they weren't actually... They weren't reading written dialogue, mm-hmm. they were just... Oh, that's so... I love this movie even more now. Okay, so the documentary is called The Dust Bowl. It, it, it was made in 2012. Um, and the thing was I... Was it by Ken Burns? Uh, yeah. So the thing I really liked... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the thing I really liked about using the documentary, though, is because it gave us a sense of reality of, like, mm-hmm. this is a real world. Like, that's the thing I really liked about this movie, is everything felt real. None of the tech felt sci-fi. None of the anything mm-hmm. felt, felt, you know, out of the ordinary. And I think the documentary at the beginning really helped sell that. Mm-hmm. Oh. God. I thought you were making a joke when what? you said... <laughs> when I said what? When you guessed... No, no, I did, because... Listen, that that naturalistic interview style, it was yeah. it's very Ken Burns. Yeah, but now you're oh. correct. <laughs> it was half a joke, 
But I was also like, it's probably Ken Bell. <laughs> uh, the, and, and the name, just the Dust Bowl, that's, that's his naming convention. Yeah. That's just the truth. Oh, um, okay. Let's go to the concession stand, get some popcorn at our baseball game, because that's all the only crop that's left. <laughs> I, w- I would kill for a hot dog. Hi, I'm Daniel, game master of the actual play podcast, No Dice. Join magic assholes Ixen. There's a score between me and doors, and so far, doors are zero. Perry. They definitely have a lot of daggers happening. They're they're hiding in various spaces. That's what I do. Sayersha. I always love getting stories from adventurers. I, I really wish I could just have, you know, one of my own. And a whole host of guest players. He, like, puts himself into a barrel, and then he, like, puts it over himself, and he walks out of the place. <laughs> I feel like such a badass. I'm under, I'm underneath him, like, ha! <laughs> like a poison ivy. Yeah, poison ivy. <laughs> I'm gonna do what a cleric does, and that's smash. She she comes barreling forward and just goes, coming in hot! You can find No Dice on the first Friday of every month on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or PocketPodcastNetwork.com. Yeah, they gotta find a necromancer. Yeah, they fought all the necromancers. And then they killed the necromancers. I'm assuming. I need to talk to you about Topher Grace's tire iron. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's just what's so great about that is like Topher Grace has not established himself within this role or any role as like a badass combatant of any kind, you know? <laughs> oh, it was it was a very nerdy move. And I'm honestly concerned as to why he didn't peel out and leave Murph there. <laughs> <gasps> because he loves Murph, That's true. obviously. That is true. Again, another weird like little storyline that we get but don't get at the same time. Yes. I I just think giving him A that like flat top haircut. <laughs> B letting him just his character is just Topher Grace, but what if a doctor? Yeah, it's true. Because he's a because you you cast Topher Grace to have him as Topher Grace. Especially if you don't give him more lines than he had, you know? Yeah, he had a very small... And that's, I guess that's such a weird thing to me that, like, this was a star-studded cast, and some of them only had, like, a handful of lines. Chris Nolan does this, though. He likes to stunt cast. But the thing about it is, from what I was reading, apparently, like, no one knew Matt Damon was in this movie till after it came out. Oh, yeah. No, they didn't put him in, like, the top billing at all. Right, which is wow. wild for Matt Damon. Because it's Matt Damon. Right? Yeah. Like, and so I think, like, on the one hand, I kind of feel like, yeah, he does stunt casting. But on the other hand, it's like, he might pick people that he thinks is actually good for the role over their notoriety, which is kind of nice. Well, but I just think about him casting Lucas Haas for that, like, bit role at the beginning of Inception where he's the, the rat who sells them out, mm-hmm. knowing his, like, relationship with Leonardo DiCaprio outside of the film. Like, it's just, which is just, you know, they're friends who hang out and go clubbing in New York. Mm-hmm. So it, like, kind of makes sense to cast him as, like, that ratty guy, you know? Yeah. It's, it's just, he, he knows where to put faces. And the choice of Matt Damon as the person who loses it. <laughs> he's you, got a record. <laughs> well, because, because of, like, his work in movies like the talented Mr. Ripley, you know, <laughs> he, he can portray that like 
ultimate belief that what he's doing is, in fact, the right thing to do for him mm-hmm. and the right thing to do for everyone, even if it's insane. Yeah. Like, he... And because we, at that point, know him not necessarily as the talented Mr. Ripley, but, say, as Jason Bourne mm-hmm. or, like, this, you know, kind of wholesome cornfred American hero, mm-hmm. you like, which is how he's portray- thought of by the other characters in the film. Yeah. Is... It makes his break so much more affecting. And I think that he does a really good job with the physicality of his character, too. Mm-hmm. Like, the scene when, when he's bashing his helmet against Cooper's. Mm-hmm. God. Oh, it's... Because it, it just happens, like, very jerkily. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't understand what's happening at first. You just think he's trying to, like, say... It's, it's almost like, oh, this guy's crazy. But no, there's a method. He's trying to cause an oxygen leak. Mm-hmm. And it's... Mm, Oh, okay. All right. We already talked about Tars's jokes. Yeah. I love There's the just little one more thing. I love the little um the little light for Tars. The cue light. Yeah. So good. Cuz there's one moment where um Cooper's like your light is broken and then he blinks his light on and it was like such great timing. <laughs> so good. And I honestly Self- wish more people had cue lights. <laughs> Self-destruct in 10, 9, 8. Let's have 60%. <laughs> you want to go down to 55? <laughs> it's very good. Yes, very good. S- very smart, mm-hmm. too. Like, it's it's a way to have jokes in a movie that wouldn't necessarily be joke-related. Yeah. You know? Tars gives some very, very essential levity, but also shows depth as a character. Like, when he says that he couldn't save Romilly, mm-hmm. like, ugh. Like, you feel that Tars is actually feeling that, because especially because of his backstory that he was in combat before, yeah. you know? There was one, there was one moment with um, Tars, I think it was Tars, that I didn't quite, or maybe it was Case, one of the robots, I didn't quite, like, feel like this worked in the writing, and this wasn't anything to do with, like, the joke aspect, but um, mm-hmm. when Cooper's like, oh, I'm gonna spin at the speed and connect... And the one robot is like, well, that's impossible. And he's like, no, but we have to do it. Essentially, is like what the lines kind of end up being. I'm like, why would you yes. argue with a robot? Like, <laughs> they're there to like think... tell you what the actual reality of the situation is. It was a very hero moment. I get why it's there. I was just like, really? I think it makes sense with his uh, introductory scene, though, because his, you know, the reason that he went down was because the robot pulled him out too fast. Mm-hmm. Like, that's his backstory as a pilot. So he's kind of been arguing with robots since the beginning. Yeah, th- I so loved I, it- I love the scene where he argued with Tars for the first time though. Like it was so mm-hmm. intense. I really liked it. I'll have you driving a combine. Yeah, it was like, so good. Ugh. Anyways, him as an engineer, it's, it's it's really good. Yeah. And there's one last thing that I feel like I need to talk about, which is the use of aspect ratios. Okay. I feel like. The way that he used this panoramic, the panoramic aspect ratio, mm-hmm. like where he letterboxes it in, to like, and that's typically something that you see a lot to encapsulate like a vast landscape or something like that. You know, I would it's, make a caveat to, to that in which um, that he shot this on physical film, so it wasn't yes. it wasn't a choice of aspect ratio in post. It was a choice from the beginning. Again, we're talking about Christopher Nolan making like purposeful choices going through. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So I that is, that is a true caveat. So 
But what I'm saying is that sometimes it's sometimes it's letterboxed, right? So sometimes he did shoot on this panoramic film, mm-hmm. like on this wider screen, but he didn't use it like people tend to use it. Yeah. He used it most of the time for close-ups on faces. Mm-hmm. To especially like to really put us into the point of view of the character and experience what they're experiencing in a way that like closes us into them. Yeah. Because like uh, one really good example I've seen of the panoramic aspect ratio being used in the latest season of The Expanse, okay. another hard sci-fi on Amazon Prime, there's, well, <laughs> it's, it's no, but this is a really good example okay, of, of like a deliberate usage to like, so there, there are scenes that take place in our solar system and there are scenes that take place on the other side of a wormhole. And whenever they're on the planet in the other side of the wormhole, they use this letterbox panoramic aspect ratio that really drives home, we are not in our familiar territory. Mm. We are in an alien world and we are stuck here, kind of. Like, the letterbox closes the characters in and it closes the audience in, too. Like, it's usually spatial, but he uses it, like, emotionally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Christopher Nolan uses it, yeah, not to emphasize the space, but emotionally, like you just said. (laughs) So, I, which is kind of the opposite because you're, we're used to these facial close-ups filling up the screen, like, fully. But instead, by choosing to black out parts parts of it, by choosing that film to shoot those, I think it forces us into their perspective in a way. Again, there's a it lot really, like, there's a lot of things, I think a lot of choices that Christopher Nolan makes that makes it feel like we are a part of a true reality and not a fictionalized reality, even though mm-hmm. it is a fictionalized reality. But I, I think that well, that's a great example of it is the design as the choices being made. Um to capture the, everything and then the just the incredible like design of of the world and the set and the the uh, world mm-hmm. building like it all is very places us right there with everybody and one last bit of the world building what did you want to say something well i was thinking maybe it's more like when you see something through a helmet mm-hmm. you know how it's kind of like clipped Mm-hmm. Oh, so it's and I always felt like we were with like Matthew McConaughey's character like the whole time. Like you were never really on Earth. You were kind of like seeing things from like like another perspective, even though it was real. Mm-hmm. You know. So I was wondering if maybe that was like a pullback to like no, you're this one character seeing all of this. Right. So it's kind of like we're with we're detached from it, just like Matthew McConaughey is. I don't know. I was just think about the helmet thing. It's yeah. <laughs> I like that too. I think that's a cool reading of it. Okay. One last comment on the world building. Mm-hmm. The absolute clowns of the baseball team are the New York Yankees. <laughs> and I just thank you for that, Christopher and Jonathan. Thank you for that from the bottom of my heart. <laughs> it's it, it lands right before the Dust Bowl gets even worse, so it's a needed moment of levity that just Rings so true in real life as well. Oh my gosh, do you even know? You don't even have beef with the Yankees? I have beef with all sports empires. Oh! So, the, Patri- the Patriots, the Yankees. <laughs> I didn't realize. They can all go away. This hot take is from like a second bakery. I didn't realize. I didn't realize we were getting a fresh hot take on, on sports monopolies. <laughs> They even listen. If you root, if you root for like Real Madrid, the Patriots, or the New York Yankees, and this is from a friend of mine from grad school, but you're basically rooting for the Empire and Star Wars. Okay. <laughs> oh my god. Oh my god. 
I mean, like, I I honestly can't really help you there, seeing as I have very little uh, personal experience with sports. Um, but uh, I appreciate your your very hard stance on sports monopolies. <laughs> like, if you're going to die on a hill, that's a pretty interesting one to die on. Yeah. Oh, this is this is for another show on the network, but. God, I'm so angry that the Falcons are going to have to play Tom Brady twice every year now. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll punt you over to simultaneous catch for that one. Um, <laughs> all right, so with all that out of the way, are we ready to rate this film? Did you want to do a fashion corner? No, there was there really wasn't a lot going on in this movie. Well, that's I mean the spacesuits were pretty good. The spacesuits but... were really good. I did have one. I wrote down a little note, and it says "Fashion Corner." Oh. Um, just for you, Bethany. I was thinking about oh. how how Carhartt heavy this well, this this uh, particular movie was. Now, granted, I think that that works with them being farmers, but boy, howdy, were there a lot of Carharts. Car. <laughs> Bethany was We're like not woods. sure what Carhartt. Oh was. no! Okay, so Carhartt <laughs> but is that—that that may be a, a largely Midwestern phenomenon. <laughs> You're not familiar with Carhartts? Okay, so Carhartts are a, a brand of outerwear um, that are like considered like the top quality. Cooper was wearing one, and Murph was wearing one. Like they were both wearing Carhartts. Um, that really like stood out yeah. to me that they were both wearing the same brand of jacket, especially because Murph didn't end up becoming a farmer. Yeah, I've Googled this. Oh, okay. You yeah, know, I see we're it We're familiar now. with the logo. No. Yeah, we yeah. don't wear these. It's too hot down yeah, here. Yeah, I'm sure. I have seen some Maybe people... wearing like a Columbia jacket down here probably or like Patagonia. I've yeah. seen some people wear these and it's always country people. Yeah. Well, that's... So it, is, it fits. It is I like it. Farm wear. It's this definitely farm wear. is nice. Farm wear for sure. Yeah. Um, but like... I, I just... I have one more fashion corner comment. Yes, oh, please. I love the black spacesuits at the end of the movie. They to match the Rangers, they were so good. Ugh. Black spacesuits. You just like we it. Should all commit to you it. just like it sleek. I like it sleek. You like it sleek? It looks very good. It does look very good. I I want kitty ears on my spacesuit. Yeah, customizable you want kitty ears on your spacesuit. <laughs> like Catra. Like Catra. <laughs> I think it's a good no idea. Spoilers. <laughs> Oh, that is a spoiler. Cut me out. <laughs> All right. Let's rate this movie. Oh, man. You know, that's the one thing I didn't actually think about. Because <laughs> I got so excited about talking about a, a, a cinematic experience. The real rating always happens in the moment. The real rating was love the whole time. It's the thing <laughs> that transcends gravity. Oh, no. The real rating was placed... To us, by them, from the future. <laughs> My rating is currently lowering as we... <laughs> so what are we rating okay. out of? I think... I think that we have to rate it out of years lost near a black hole. Okay. Oh, All right. <laughs> so, like, yeah, how many years did you feel like you lost watching this movie? <laughs> <laughs> Not quantifiable. <laughs> we watched. We had to watch this movie in parts because Bethany's been actually kind of busy with school. Mm -hmm. But we did. We did watch all of it. We did do that. It's a long ass movie. So long. It's so fucking yeah, long. Okay. 
One one more hot take, and I'm sure it's from Bethany. How much time do you think we could have cut off this movie? At least an hour. At, at le- least. Oh yeah, no, for sure, hundred percent. But like, I don't even know where. Like, that's the weird because part. Because it's dense. Yeah. Like, it's not like it was trash. It was just like we probably didn't need it all. I think, and I think a lot of that is just we're not used to like epic pacing anymore from like a blockbuster culture. But the thing mm-hmm. about it is, I think that just the timing was directly proportional to the writing. Like, I think the writing could have been pared down mm-hmm. so that it wasn't such a mm-hmm. long movie. When are we going to bring back intermissions? Ooh. Yes. Like, if you're going to make a movie longer than two hours, or even longer than two hours and 15 minutes, I think you need an intermission. I, like I think it. it worked for Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah. And I think it could work for this. Yeah. I agree. Okay. How many years? Who, who wants, who, who's going first? Don't we let the guests go first? I think we could let the guests go first. <laughs> All right. Let's let the guests go first. Well, I wrote down while we were talking, I wrote down a number, but this was before you said years lost, but I think, I think we'll translate it. Um, I have, yeah. I have an eight. We ran out of five typically. You should have explained that. That was our, that was our bad. That was that, our, that bad. Is so, our bad. So, so eight so. years lost. <laughs> <laughs> eight years lost. And then rated out of five, uh, I would say a four. <laughs> a four. Okay. We're both doing finger guns at each other, telling each other to go first. <laughs> okay. I will go ahead and give this one a 4.4. Wow. Nice. You knew it was going to be How many years lost? Uh, I think I lost about six years. It doesn't translate. But I would say 4.4 out of 5 for this one. Yeah, it's not a ratio. It's it's two separate feelings. <laughs> yeah. Yes. yes. It's it's <laughs> 6 and 4.5. Like, I think that those are... Or you said 4.5 <laughs> or 4.4? 4.4. Okay. I just want to make sure that I'm writing these down because I think this is very important information for me to be writing down for some reason. Okay. I think my out of five rating is 3.82. Okay. It's a pretty good one from you yeah. for a Nolan film. Yeah. You guys really, you know, bolstered the score with all the good things and the films and stuff. And then I think I lost probably about 20 years of my life. <laughs> That's just a conservative estimate never see the dogs again <gasps> oh my god what is wrong with you <laughs> they, they're going to live forever it's true so that gives us an I'm average reality of 4.07 for the for the rating Ooh. which is i think Ooh. pretty pretty good and then oops oops hang on uh i gotta yeah. actually uh, do my calculations correct? I gotta confer for with Tars. Um, and for year <laughs> for years lost, we've got eleven point three as our average. Mm, okay, it's it's so long. Yeah, but like I think it's worth the journey. It is about the journey. Like it, it really it's a movie about the journey. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Brittany. Yeah, of course, anytime. Hey. Uh, tell us about where we can find you on the Pocket Podcast Network. You can find me um, on the No Dice Podcast. So if you kind of go anywhere and search for No Dice Podcast, you will be able to find us. It is an actual play D&D game. Um, I play a paladin 
fighter multi-class dragonborn named Ixen, um, and she is one part of a group called the Magic Assholes, um, and we've had a lot of fun adventures. Um, we're, like I said, we're about to do our guest month episode, and then we're going to kind of do some more of our regular adventure. Um, as always, I can't say enough good things about the past uh, two episodes that were just released, which were uh, the Fantastic Adventures of the Magic Assholes, which John helped write and create, make a reality. Um, also played with any on yeah, that. a lot of fun on those. Yeah, yeah, they're super, super good. So if you haven't listened to those yet, I highly re- recommend you check those out. Um, and then for me personally, I am at Britty Lee Film, um, which is B-R-I-T-T-Y-L-E-A Film at any, pretty much anywhere, any social media platform. Um, and that's, that's kind of a combination of, of the stuff that I'm working on right now. There we go. Our theme music is Oil Waves by the Organ Machines from their first EP, which you can find wherever you stream music or on bandcamp.com. And what else do we normally talk about here? Oh, no, listen, look at, (laughs) I don't, we've got other podcasts on our network besides No Dice and Home Viewing. Yes, we do. Ooh, go check out the my guest spot on Them's the Facts. Yeah, that should be out. It is out. That is out. It is. Yes, so definitely go check that out. So we had a lot of fun making that one as well. Um, and pretty much every show on the network has guest spots. I have a guest spot on Sorted, and then Sorted has a guest spot on Steampunks. There's just this entire wonderful web of guest hosts on other podcasts throughout May. So it's definitely worth checking out to find out more about the network. So until next time, I'm John. I'm Bethany. What are you waiting for? I don't know. Don't buy too many Blu-rays. Close enough. Don't buy any more DVDs. This is never how you knew it. Nobody looks at it that way but you. We are some drowning, but you were the one with the blood on your head. Pocket Podcast Network. Quality programming right to your pocket.